Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to another episode of the Diamond Duo Podcast. Postseason edition for the first time, baby. Welcome to October, and welcome to episode 6 of the Diamond Duo Podcast. I am Tony Puglisi, joined by my wonderful co-host and co-producer Tom Bauer, here to bring you all things baseball, all things happy and sad about the beginning of this postseason. And if you're at all familiar with our podcast, you'll know exactly why I said happy and sad moments. But enough of that for now. Tom, we are in October. It is time for the MLB postseason. How are you feeling? Well, you know, I felt really enthusiastic going into it, but of course, because this show is brought to you by two miserable Yankees fans... Um, my feelings of excitement quickly diminished once I saw Garrett Cole throw a couple of pitches in the first inning of the AL wildcard game. But besides the Yankees completely shitting the bed, there we go with the cursing already. There's going to be plenty more of that when we talk about the wild AL wildcard game, by the way. Yeah, besides that, honestly, this is probably one of the postseasons I've actually followed the most in recent years, probably because... I have to do a podcast about baseball, and I kind of need to know a little bit about each series. But, I mean, I'm enjoying the postseason for what it's been so far. Tony, you have a disgusted look on your face, and I'm wondering why. Now you're laughing. So, I was going to bring this up when we got to the wildcard game, is that this actually leads into uh, the next point on our rundown. Disclaimer, we are recording on Sunday, October 10th, right? Yes, 10th. I know the dates. Sometimes we are recording on Sunday, October 10th. So obviously some games and series will be done and over with by the time this episode goes out. If something is inaccurate by then, please refer to that. We are recording Sunday. And on this Sunday of ours, we are recording in the middle of game three between the Tampa Bay Rays and the Boston Red Sox. I have that game on on the TV that's behind me right now, or rather in front of me. Uh, The audio is obviously muted because we don't want to get sued by Major League Baseball, and we also don't want anybody else talking over us. So if Tom, the disgusted look Tom referred to on my face is that Nathan Eovaldi just threw an absolutely nasty, for lack of a better word, change up to Joey Wendell to strike out the side. So you may get periodic updates of this game that's already happened, and you'll get live reactions from two Yankees fans on a game with two teams we absolutely hate. You need to provide this commentary for me because I have no way of watching. Well, actually, I do have a way of watching the game right now because I could pull up Hulu if they... Or no, it's on MLB Network, I think, so I can't mm-hmm. pull up Hulu because those f***ers aren't on Hulu and we don't pay for that on Hulu because Hulu sucks. Also, I don't have a cable box in my basement because I don't have a cable box in this house, if you could tell by the way I said we have Hulu. Yeah, that that's not the point of this discussion. So Tony will be uh, providing that commentary mainly for me as probably a way to hype me up or um, put me down during the middle of the show. Totally intentional. Don't worry about it, though. At any rate, let me plug our Instagram and Twitter handles before I go on any further. On Instagram, we are the Diamond Duo Podcast. On Twitter, the or no, on Twitter we are at Diamond Duo Pod. And on those accounts, we actually posted a poll regarding our teams of the week last week. Um, we posted on our Twitter, we set a 24-hour limit on that, and then also on our Instagram story. And Tony, I have the results for what the general public 
thought of whose team of the week was better. Are you ready to hear those results if you haven't looked at them already? The last time I looked at them was when we just posted them, so they most likely have changed since then. Lay it on me. What happened? Well, they have changed since then. And I'll start with Twitter, because that started with the least amount of votes. We only got five total votes on Twitter. That's okay. I'd rather have five than zero. So we had a 3-2 tally in favor of yours truly, Mr. Tom Bauer. So I'm already have the lead. But on Instagram, we had 11 votes total. And drum roll, please. Maybe I'll insert a drum sound effect instead of me uh, clicking my... We both just did a drum roll. So let's just have three drum rolls on top of each other. (laughs) And only... I'm down with that. And only one of them is an actual drum. But exactly. So anyway, on Instagram, we had 11 votes total, six to five in favor of Tony. Hey, all right. So if you do the math, though, that's an 8-8 split. So we kind of tied on the polls. So we didn't have a clear and concise winner. That's kind of the disappointing (laughs) news. We had a split down the middle, but it was all in good humor. So 8-8 split, so I guess we both can evenly say we had a great team of the month of September, but nobody can have true bragging rights going into October and into the off-season. But, you know what? I'd rather have some results than no results, and I'd rather it end in a tie than Tony take that victory away from me. You know, I was gonna say, as happy as I am that we got some engagement from y'all, damn, a tie? I was hoping to pull away with this. I had Juan Solo, uh, Juan Solo, oh my god. Tom, you said... Now, this isn't Star Wars, Tony. <laughs> this isn't Han Solo, not Juan Solo. This is the Spanish, Come on now. This is the Spanish dub of, of Star Wars. His name is Juan Solo now. No. <laughs> any rate, Tony, before we start drifting off and talk more shenanigans, let's just get right into these wild card shenanigans that you just happened to write on the rundown. Our shenanigans right into the wild card shenanigans. So, Tony, I think we might as well just peel the Band-Aid right off... <laughs> right out of the way and let's just get the yankees over you wrote down sadness on the rundown and (laughs) let's hear you explain why you wrote down sadness although it's already common knowledge at this rate Uh, explaining why you're sad as a yankees fan can honestly be boiled down to the same damn thing you've been saying for the past what four five years something like that i mean what is there to say about the wild card game from the first inning on you even mentioned it earlier the second garrett cole through his through a pitch we I, I think we already knew it was gonna go down from there bogarts xander bogarts hit an absolute nuke of a home run to dead center field nathan evaldi was absolutely nasty he went i believe six and two thirds and the red sox win the red sox win handily no offense on the yankees part aside from some one-off home runs from anthony rizzo and john carlos stanton god bless john carlos stanton being like the only Yankees hitter to show up in the last month or so of the season. Good for him. Also, f*** the green monster for taking away home runs from John Carlos Stanton in the past like month, oh, including the <laughs> wild card game. That's right. I almost forgot about that. Dude went like three for four with two of them being singles, and those two probably would have been home runs at almost any other ballpark. And it drastically would have changed the game, especially on one of those singles that just happened to go out off the wall. And why is that? you might be asking. Well, I have a laundry list of notes from that game that I'm not going to be able to get to uh, because that game is ancient history. But why the f*** would you send Aaron Judge, Phil Nevin? What the hell is wrong with you? Yeah. 
God, you led the MLB in people getting thrown out at the plate. That's another reason why the Yankees f***ing at the bed this year. And then you decide to send Aaron Judge on that, even though once Aaron Judge was rounding third base, Xander Bogarts had the ball in his hand. Granted, it needed to be a perfect relay to probably get Judge at the plate, and it was a perfect relay. But come on, dude. You had the perfect situation. You would have had one out, second and third. Joey Gallo is going to be batting next. He would have hit a sack flyer, would have struck out, and then I would have strangled him if he struck out, which I think he may have actually done at that at bat. But. I think he popped out. Uh, well, but whatever the case may be, I, I wasn't very happy with that. I, I also love that Judge wasn't even the tying or go-ahead run in that scenario. This, it would have made the score 4-2, to two, or rather 4-3, to three, instead of 4-2, to two, I believe. That just pissed me off. As you can tell, it probably pissed Tom off as well. But no, this game was an absolute slaughter. The Red Sox deserve their win. They've played great, and they've played great against the Rays so far. Obviously, we'll get into that later. But Tom, I think the same thing is on every Yankee fan's uh, mind right now. They have some serious, serious questions to answer in the offseason. I remember just briefly reading an article about um, uh, Aaron Boone's talk with the media after the loss. I'll get more into that later because I want to hear what you say first, and I also need to pull up the article on my phone to make sure I'm not quoting it incorrectly. So I'm just going to give my general thoughts about the game in a more brief manner, kind of maybe chronological order, I don't know, while you pull up that Aaron Boone article. So obviously Cole had no command, didn't live up to that paycheck. Was he hurt? Was something else wrong? You, you just can't leave pitches over the heart of the plate, dude. And then on 2-1 counts, the 2-1 count in the wild card game, and we'll get into this when we get into the NL wild card game, three home runs happened with a 2-1 count in the AL and NL wildcard game, and Garrett Cole just so happened to lay meatballs right down the heart of the plate and up in the zone for home runs when the 2-1 count happened. So great job, Garrett Cole. You you diminished your legacy in pinstripes with that performance. Um, Ivaldi, he pitched brilliantly. He's pitching today as we speak, October 10th. He mixed up his timing tremendously in two-strike counts. That threw off the Yankees' offense when it mattered the most. But the Yankees' game plan at the plate drastically was different from the Red Sox. So the Yankees decided, you know, we're going to take just attack, attack, attack Nathan Eovaldi, and that did not work for them very well. They tried to attack the fastballs of him. They swung at 25 of the first 39 pitches, and that, yeah, your eyes are popped up. I saw that in the game. I'm like, what the hell are you guys doing? Like, it was not a working strategy. The Yankees are known for, well, not in recent years, but usually being disciplined at the plate, which the Red Sox were all night. They were very disciplined at the plate, waiting for their pitch, and then they ultimately capitalized on those pitches from Garrett Cole and then the later half of the bullpen. And then what else do I have to say about it? Oh, yeah, the last thought I'll give on this game is A-Rod... You are a complete dumbass. You said um, this is only Garrett Cole's, like, it's his, like, sophomore year or something like that. Or it's going to be his sophomore year next year. Or so- I-, I don't even remember the quote, but people quickly pointed out that, like, yeah, Cole's sophomore year will be next year. will be better. Something like that. This is his second year with the Yankees, you f***ing idiot. And by the way, speaking of A-Rod, he also said at one point that Kyle Schwarber was traded to the Red Sox by the Cubs. Also not true. They got him from the Nationals. Do your f***ing research, you overpaid hack. Maybe Matt Vaskersian shouldn't be the one leaving Sunday Night Baseball. It should be A-Rod. They want to build with A-Rod, and I think that's the most stupid thing. Right? But at any rate, yeah, Vaskersian, like, he wants to leave Sunday Night Baseball for his own, like, reasons. He wants to focus more on the Angels, stuff he's doing at MLB Network, and other stuff that he wants to achieve. So I don't blame him for that. But A-Rod, you gotta go from Sunday Night Baseball, dude. Like, if you want to stay in the booth as, like, a commentator, like, for, like, 
with Frank Thomas and Big Poppy and Pedro, like over at Fox or MLB Network, by all means do that. I'm not going to watch it anyway, so you know what? You can go ahead and say whatever you want there. Um, and I'll just pick up your stupid snippets on uh, Twitter as they pop up on my timeline. Dear God in heaven, that infuriated me. Not only the Yankees losing, but I had to listen to A-Rod throughout the entirety of the game. That is a fate worse than death. That's a fate worse than death for any Yankees fan. And speaking of fate worse than death, let's talk briefly about the Yankees offseason because I pulled up the article and let's move on to the next wildcard game right after that. So on this article, it's an article just on the MLB app. It's called What's Next for the Yankees This Offseason? And they touch on a couple of topics. They touch on, uh, you know, Aaron Boone. They touch on how they're going to approach their players. They say at one point that um, Luke Voigt's future with the team is uncertain to say the least it's very much being called into question anthony rizzo's a free agent you gotta wonder if they pursue him they go on to say the club has abandoned any thought of glaber torres as their shortstop of the future given his defensive floundering at that position i'm surprised they didn't come to that conclusion sooner and especially with this year's or this offseason's shortstop class including guys like Corey Seager and Trevor Story. I could actually see Cashman making a push for Trevor Story. Corey Seager, I'm not too sure. We'll see. Nevertheless, one thing that I wanted to point out is this little snippet here about Aaron Boone, because Boone straight up acknowledged, look, it's not just the Red Sox and the Astros we have to worry about anymore. The Blue Jays are a completely new team. There's teams in the Central breaking out, albeit they're still AL Central teams. We'll clown on them later. Even teams like the Mariners are going through something of a renaissance. We can't be spinning the tires going in the same circles as we normally have, which hearing that from Aaron Boone is actually the one smart thing I may have heard from him all year. That's at least he acknowledges that the Yankees are strategically and analytically being left are being left in the dust by almost every other competitive team in the American League. And he seems to have also gotten a vote of confidence, not just from Hal Steinbrenner and Brian Cashman, but from the players. Aaron Judge, this is a direct quote, said, he's just a special uh, a special person, a special coach, and I'm hoping for more in the future. So as much as Yankee fans, I'll put myself in this camp as well, because I'm pretty sure I've said this on the podcast as well. I don't want Aaron Boone as a Yankees manager next year. I've been very vocal about that. But when you look at this objectively, he has a 600 winning percentage with the team. If you look at straight wins and losses, he's not doing anything wrong. But when you're looking at postseason success and the expectations that have been placed upon him and placed upon his ball club, he's come up short every single year. So that's what I wanted to say from this article. Tom, what do you think about this whole situation? Because I'm still on the fence about Aaron Boone. I still don't know if he's the right man to helm the ship, but I'm starting to think maybe the changes need to happen more up the corporate ladder, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I was getting into a Twitter discussion with our good friend Jesse um, about this, and I was saying it's a baseball ops problem that the Yankees have at the moment. They need to change their entire philosophy of how they're going to handle things analytically and stuff like that. I suggested a clean housing of Cashman, the analytics department, Boone, and even Phil Nevin for that egregious um, sending of Aaron Judge, and more notably the amount of times the Yankees have gotten thrown out the plate this season. But I say that not in, like, because I absolutely hate them. I think, like, I applaud them for all they've done for the organization, but business is business. You got to move on. And if you got to win, sometimes you got to shake up the pot and get the job done. But anyway, I actually applaud Aaron Boone because he's the first person in the Yankees that actually acknowledges there are some philosophy issues and issues that need to be fixed. And which Brian Cashman, 
I have never seen him acknowledge that to this day. He just say, says the same exact asinine comments that he does to the media all the time, and there's no change. He'll make changes at the deadline. He'll make the little changes and think that'll be good enough. But you got to think big picture, man. Like, you got to go a little bit bolder with your stuff and fix the entire thing. In regards to your winning percentage thing, I feel like any manager could be thrown into the situation, put the team on autopilot, and then they could easily win 90 games each year just with the roster that they've compiled. But in the postseason, you can't put your team on autopilot. That's when the manager's position is highlighted extensively because you have to play it's I mean you're playing a chess game every time you step onto the diamond in the manager's role but you're especially playing in a more intricate game of chess when the postseason rolls around and that's just something that Aaron Boone has not been able to successfully do over the past couple of seasons he's a great guy very personable very likable as a person but you got to also send a message to the players too that even though it might not be their entire fault that the team is kind of falling, because again, it's a philosophy issue, I think, you gotta stir up the pot, because you can't keep rolling with the same core, the same manager, the same analytics department, the same coaches, and the same GM for four or five years, and not have something great to, to come out of it. And they haven't gotten anything good to come out of it. That's why I think the change has to be necessary this offseason. Very well put. Very well put. I mean, just look at a team like the New England Patriots when they were in their prime, when they won, what was it? I think I think it was a million Super Bowls in like four years. And I'm pretty sure that was the statistic. They were absolutely brutal in player and coach retention. If, if you're not good for the team, get your ass out the door. It doesn't matter if you're long tenured or a first year wideout who sort of kind of didn't work. This is a goddamn well-oiled machine and we're here to win a Super Bowl. That's honestly the, the approach I really think the Yankees need to take from here on out. Don't cut someone after, don't go full George Steinbrenner and full of fire a manager after one year, which obviously that's his son Hal's biggest fear. That's why Boone hasn't been fired yet. But if the Yankees take that approach in the offseason, hopefully things will finally change. But Tom, I think it's interesting you mention when you talk about the postseason as an intricate game of chess. I have it written down on our rundown talking oh, about- Oh, I didn't even see that. I didn't even see <laughs> I was so happy you said that because now I have a clever transition into the National League wildcard game because, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, if you want a microcosm of how the MLB postseason can be an intricate game of chess, can be a methodical, truly deep and intricate strategy-based game more than anything else, look at that Dodgers-Cardinals game. I tell you what, I've not seen such a, such an interesting, and I, I don't want to say intense wildcard game, but I want to say entertaining wildcard game. But we, Because when I think of entertaining wildcard games, first one that comes to my mind is 2014 A's versus Royals, high scoring, momentum shifting, the lead changes every couple innings. This game, stop me if I'm talking out of my ass, but this game, the lead only changed once, and that's when the Dodgers finally won it in the ninth inning. We'll talk about that later. But Tom, this was a gritty, a low-scoring pitcher's duel that was truly, you ask me, there was so much tension in almost every inning. Even though there was only three runs scored total, pardon me, four runs scored total, you still, both teams almost had 10 hits. They were both, granted, not, not good with runners in scoring position, but that's all the more credit you got to give to the pitchers. And when you look up and down that box score, Tom, there was only one pitcher who I thought did poorly. And it, frankly, it was just because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't know why Mike Schilt put this man in. We'll talk about him when we talk about the ninth inning. 
But Tom, what are your thoughts about this wildcard game? So I wish that I got to see this NL wildcard game from start to finish. I had to work that night, and luckily I was able to put it on my laptop. I had some downtime, and I was able to watch the game. I got all my tasks done, and I was able to watch the game for the most part. I did jot down some notes from that, too. First off, we say it was a great game, like intricately set up and all that. But whose dumbass idea was it to put Angel Hernandez in the field with Joe West behind home plate? Like, oh yeah, for- are you trying to like, are you trying to make it the most unmarketable umpire game of all time? Like, come on now. Granted, Joe West did a good job behind home plate in that game. I'll give him that. He may have had some questionable calls, but nothing serious comes to mind. And I don't think Angel Hernandez put his two cents into the game's outcome. But what I wrote down was the Cardinals. They were extremely patient and disciplined at the plate, much like the Red Sox were against the Yankees. They got Max Scherzer's pitch count up to 75 pitches by the fourth inning. That's not something that happens very often when Max Scherzer's on the mound, because this is a workhorse who can go the full nine innings if he's a well-oiled machine that day. But the Cardinals, even though Scherzer was a well-oiled machine, you know, I think he only gave up the one run. They just got to him, and they wore him down. Adam Wainwright, I think, fared a little bit better because I think he went longer into the game. He just hung that one curveball that Justin Turner absolutely raked over the left field fence for the Dodgers' first run. But Wayno's curves, they didn't seem to fool the Dodgers that much, I thought. I thought he threw a lot of curveballs that either hit into the dirt that Will Smith had to scoop up, or the Dodgers just weren't biting at them, and Joe West wasn't giving them the strike. So, um, not that they were strikes, but... Wayno still threw a good game otherwise. Um, It's all about timing and all that stuff. And then I wrote down that Max Scherzer, he was out by the top of the fifth inning, and then dot, 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 because I had to leave work at that point to go home. So that's when I started the details of the game. That's when I started to not be able to see the entirety of the game. I did get home in time for that ninth inning, though. So I don't know, Tony, if you have any thoughts about the kind of first, like, seven or eight innings that you wanted to talk about um, that I didn't hit on. Um, besides Edmondo Sosa needing spider tack in his glove because he um, dropped two balls in the first three innings at short for the Cardinals. Um, but anything else that you want to throw into it, and then you can take over um, to what happened in the ninth inning. I was actually going to bring up Edmundo Sosa because that's one of the few things I remember from early in the game. And I said I was going to be giving updates. The Red Sox just tied it against the Tampa Bay Rays. It is a 2-2 ball game in the bottom of the third with nobody out. Drew Rasmussen is collapsing but we'll talk about that during the ALDS. Well, sh- Kevin Cash is going to pull his starter out too early again. What a surprise. It's not like he does that in meaningful games at all. It's not Never. like he did it in the World Series or in Game 2 of the ALDS or something like that. Anyway, Tony, you can go on. <laughs> I wanted to touch more on the fact that you said they wore Max Scherzer down. I, from the first batter of the game, I was I had the game on the whole night. I was kind of peering on and off just because I was talking with some friends at the time. So I did watch the whole game, but during the very beginning is where this really hit me. By the way, Drew Rasmussen is out of the game now. <laughs> Two innings pitch. Tom, you're a f***ing prophet. Oh, God. It's like I have a knack for this sort of thing. <laughs> well, again, trust me. They don't call me bad luck. <laughs> they, they don't call me bad luck Bauer for no reason. That's true. That's true. And we'll get into more on Kevin Cash for the divisional series talk, but Tommy Edmond, the first batter of the game and the first one to uh, to face uh, to face Max Scherzer, puts up a hell of an at bat, fouls off pitch after pitch after pitch, and by the time he finally gets down to first base, I, Max Scherzer's already up to I think ten pitches or so. And th- this is actually kind of funny to think about. That one run that the Cardinals ended up scoring was Tommy Edmond in that first inning, and it was almost by accident. Tom, you mentioned the 
you know, the curveballs and the breaking balls that Scherzer was throwing in the dirt. It, it was a wild pitch that Edmonds scored on. The Cardinals went, I, granted, as good as they were at the plate and as good as they were at getting runners on to uh, set up, to, you know, get ducks on the pond and set up a big scoring inning. Yeah, they went 0 for 11 with runners in scoring position. So as great as, like I said, they put up great battles at the plate. It's not just Tommy Edmond. Paul Goldschmidt hardly swung at a single pitch inside this, or excuse me, outside the zone. Nolan Arenado, I don't believe he got a hit, but he battled as well, at the risk of something like Mickey Calloway. He battled. They just couldn't bring it home. The devil magic that the Cardinals pretty much fuel every single playoff run with could only get them so far. And as evidence with the ninth inning, it could only get them as far as the wildcard game, because we had some history in this wildcard game. Chris Taylor, the Dodgers... Let's say plug-and-play type guy. He had a fantastic season overall. Oh, yeah. D- definitely one of the more underrated players in the National League. But definitely like, oh, Justin Turner's hurt a third base. Let's put Chris Taylor in there. Cody Bellinger doesn't look like himself. Let's plug Chris Taylor in at center. He actually was selected to the All-Star, the NL All-Star roster as a center fielder. Chris Taylor is the first batter to greet Alex Reyes out of the bullpen. And he smacks a walk-off two-run home run to left and much jubilation was had. A walk-off and a do-or-die game for both teams is something very, very rare. I'll touch on that later. And it was truly a fantastic moment, an all-time home run and a fantastic moment for Chris Taylor. But my question, why the f*** was Alex Reyes in the game? <laughs> I, Mike Schilt demoted him from the closer role because he couldn't handle high leverage situations and mostly used him down the stretch as like a sixth or seventh inning guy just to either preserve a lead or just to pitch in garbage time if they were down like four or five to nothing. Why would you put him in the highest level of leverage possible? And why did you pitch Giovanni Gallegos earlier? I'm pretty sure they pitched him in the eighth. I don't know why. So that's my question about that one moment. Truly a fantastic moment for Dodgers fans everywhere. And like I said, for Chris Taylor, congratulations to him. But my God, Mike Schultz, that uh, it, it's not quite pitching Ubaldo Jimenez instead of Zach Britton, if you remember that. But still, Alex Reyes should not have been in the game at all. No, he shouldn't have. But it's funny, you, he got kind of pulled after these high leverage situations things by Mike Schultz after I think he went on like a historic streak of like 25, like, consecutive saves or something like that whatever that streak was Alex Reyes um surely definitely forgot that but let's break down that ninth inning a little bit more for the Dodgers so TJ Mark Farland a lefty that they I believe acquired from Oakland earlier in the year mm-hmm. I could be wrong about that um he's been well for the Cardinals all year so obviously Mike Schild trusted him he gets to two outs and then the best Dodgers batter this year Cody Bellinger he steps up to the plate he walked him I believe. I don't know. I think it was either a full count or like, I think it was a very close count by the end of the at-bat or maybe it was 3-1. I don't know. But McFarland walked him. And then that's when Mike Schild went to the bullpen to go get Alex Reyes. I think I could be mistaken, but maybe Gavin Lux was scheduled to hit or maybe that was earlier in the game when they had Steven Sousa Jr. pinch hit. But they had somebody scheduled to pinch it and then they may have switched it to Chris Taylor once it went around, or I, I don't know. But at any rate, Bellinger is on first, and then that's when they brought in Alex Reyes. And then Belly took off for second at some point, and then Yachty, he couldn't grip the ball in the dirt. So that was another interesting situation, because there was two outs at that rate. If Yachty secured that ball 
and he didn't lose the grip in his hand. Because, if first of all, if he tried to throw that ball, that would have ended up in center field, and that would have been even worse for the Cardinals. Um, I mean, couldn't have been much worse than what happened. But um would have made it interesting at the very least. If Yadi grips that ball properly and throws out Belly at second, then we go to the 10th inning, and then that's a whole new ball game. We don't know what would have happened. And th- then Alex Reyes, he got into that... 2-1 count that I was talking about earlier where people like to hit home runs in the wild card series on. Chris Taylor. Boom, baby! Etched your name in history. See you later, Cardinals. Bye-bye, Birdie. Broadway reference. Broadway. Broadway. Bro- <laughs> Broadway reference. <laughs> bye-bye, Grammar. Jesus. Uh, we talk about bye-bye, Birdie. Bye-bye, Grammar. Oh, yeah, vey. So, yeah, that's the ninth thing. <laughs> Well, I let's go into the blooper at least, folder. At least we have our audiogram audio for this week in a nice broad, re- <laughs> broad, 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 Again, Sands, Runnerson's scoring position, pretty much for both teams, actually. But yeah, one too many mistakes on the Cardinals' end. The foundation was cracked, and everything came toppling down in the ninth. So that was your wildcard games, and that is what set up Red Sox versus Rays in the ALDS. By the way, it's now 3-2 to two Boston, because Josh Fleming is in the game for some f***ing reason. Uh, and it's also how we got... The first ever matchup, yes, I'm as surprised as you are that this is their first ever postseason matchup of the Dodgers and the Giants. We'll talk about both leagues' divisional series in just a moment, but Tom, let's say we take a break and have a trivia question. Oh, goody, and I know it's going to be the trivia question that you pose to me, so this can only go well based on my track record mm-hmm. of going one for four. Yeah, of course, of course. You see, I was going to be mean after that question you posed me last week and just ask you... <laughs> Something completely irrelevant, like, hey, what's Giancarlo Stanton's OPS in this year's postseason after one game? But And you would have gotten two middle fingers that the audience couldn't see <laughs> if you said that, but go on. <laughs> so I decided to go a little nicer, and full disclosure, we didn't talk about which questions, like, we normally talk about which questions we want to ask before the show. Obviously, we, well, the su- well, we don't tell each other. The subject yeah, yeah, yeah. of each question. We don't tell each other the question itself. <laughs> Yeah, I, w- I could have worded that a lot better. We don't just tell each other yeah. the questions, but we didn't do that today, and I hope we didn't. Uh, I hope we didn't ask each other the same question because my question is about the National League Wild Card game. So, as we discussed, Chris Taylor hit the walk off home run, sending the Dodgers to the next round. This marks the fifth time in MLB history, all of MLB history, in which a walk off home run has decided a do-or-die game. By do-or-die game, I mean a wild-card game. Game 5 of the Divisional Series, Game 7 of the World Series, or the Championship Series. Tom, what I want you to do is name me two other players that have done that in history. I can tell you one of them off the top of my head. I already know one. And it actually happened, I believe, to the team the Dodgers played. The Cardinals, I believe it was David Freeze back in that 2011 World Series when he hit that. Yeah, you're shaking your head. I hope I'm right. Or, or am I wrong? Or... You are wrong. What the f***? That was a do or die game. That's bullshit. No, it wasn't because that wouldn't have won them. Like, it's do or die, not just die. Oh, That's in, okay. That home okay. run was in game I'm sorry. six. Uh, 
Oh, like, okay. basically, Fuck. whoever wins okay. that goes home. Or sorry, wow, oh. whoever loses that game goes home, and whoever wins that advances. Oh, okay, 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 okay. So can you ask me the question again so that way I understand it a little bit better now? Yep, no problem. So Chris Taylor is the fifth man in MLB history to hit a series clinching home run in a do or die game. By do or die game, okay. wild card game, game five of the DS, or game seven of the CS or World Series. Walk off home run. Okay. So like Howie Kendrick's Grand Slam in 2019 doesn't count. Gotcha. I don't know why Siri activated as I was saying that. So... Tom, out of the four men that did it before Chris Taylor, I want you to name me two of them. It had to be a walk-off, correct? Correct. They're all pretty well-known um, home runs. I mean, obviously, they're do-or-die walk-off home runs. People are going to remember them. I just want you to see okay. if you can get the context and see if you can squeeze out two of them, because I think you'll know them even if you get it wrong and I tell you, so go right ahead. Okay, so one, the first one that came to mind, I don't know if this is a Game 7 or not. I want to say the Joe Carter home run, uh, the touch them all Joe. I don't know if that was a game seven, though. That's the problem. It was not. I believe it was game okay. six, five or six. Okay, so that is not one of the answers. That was one of them that came to mind. One of them that also comes to mind is Bill Mazeroski with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Again, I don't remember if that was a game seven or not, but can you tell me if I'm in the right direction? Bill Mazeroski was a game seven. And that's actually one of the answers. So you got one. You just need one more. And that, okay, I got, that was, I got one. Okay. I'll tell you this. Mazeroski is the oldest one. Mazeroski hit the very first one. So all three other ones are going to be after 1960. Okay, cool. So now I have a better shot. I need to think about this because I, I think I'm on the right. I'm going in the right direction with my mind. But now everything has come to a blank now that I've complimented myself. Do or die situations. I'm trying to think of big games that just spring to the top of my head. I'm happy I got Bill Mazeroski right. I'm trying to think if there's any in the 2010s that come to mind. I don't recall any now. Oh, you know what? I don't know if this was a do-or-die game. What about the Travis Ishikawa home run with the Giants? Ooh, that's a nice... That's a very underrated moment of 2010s postseason history. Unfortunately, it wasn't Game 7. That, I'm pretty sure, was Game 5. That, I, I figured that. I think that the Giants had like a big lead in that situation. I knew it advanced the Giants, I think, to the World Series. It did. So that one came to mind. It did. Okay. But you are on the right track. Okay, so it's not 2011 then, because that wasn't a walk-off. 2012 was the Tigers. They got evaporated in the World Series. <laughs> 2013, I don't want to talk about. Uh, 2014. Here, do you want me to do you want me to give you a hint? Yeah, I'll I'll take a hint because I don't want this to drag on forever. Because none of these three happened in the World Series. Okay, that helps. One sent a team. Actually, two sent a team to the World Series. I believe one was lower than that. Was one of them the Chris Burke game? Chris Burke with the um Astros in like 2005. That Wait. like 18th inning blast. Wait a minute, that's not one that I have listed, but I think that might actually be one. Wait, unless it was a game Hang four. I, got... I thought it was a game. I think that was like a game six. That's why I questioned it. But let me... Um, it's not one that I have listed, so I'm willing to bet it's just wrong. And I don't I don't think I forgot any because I know MLB published an article about it. Gotcha. Well, I'm going to look it up. Um, I'm going to speed in time because if I am right about it, I'm taking the credit for this question. You better not be cheating. You better not just be looking up. No, no, I'm not looking that up. <laughs> I'm Okay, that, that, that was game four of the 2005 DS. So that okay. would not count. I, I knew it was the DS. I was just worried if it was game five or not. Because if it was, then my research would have been wrong and I would have brought shame to my profession and I would have jumped on a samurai sword. So for time purposes, I'm going to have to... Oh, wait. 
Aaron Boone. Yes. Aaron Boone was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I was missing one off the top of my head. Aaron Boone. I was kind of hoping yeah, you wouldn't you get that one just because I could lead into I it. I would have felt terrible. It's <laughs> so I could lean into that. it with, oh, our favorite manager hit one back in 03. <laughs> the one. Luis Rojas? <laughs> oh, wait. He's not a manager anymore. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Well, I'll let you know the two you missed. It was Chris Chambliss in, I believe, 78, the home run that sent the Yankees to the World Series. You know, you you definitely know the clip when the fans stormed Yankee Stadium and Chambliss yes, looked like yes, 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 a yes. running back just mowing people down, getting to the dugout. <laughs> and yeah. the other one, I actually mentioned it earlier, uh, I alluded to it, was Edwin Encarnacion in the 2016 wildcard game off of Ubaldo Jimenez. Ah, oh, crap. I didn't even consider that game. So there was one in the 2010s, been... but hey, you still got it right. So, hey, good I'm job. two for three now. Hey, <laughs> two for three and two for five. No, we've got we've been going six weeks. How can I be two for wait. five? <laughs> wait, neither of us can no, do that. I'm math. two for four. I'm two for four. Jesus. <laughs> oh, God. Edit, edit this out. Neither oh of us God. can do Don't math. Edit it out. This is a shining example oh, of both boy. of us. But anyway, let's oh, talk about Jesus. not math. <laughs> let's let's talk about depression because it's the ALDS and the Yankees aren't there. What which series would you like to start with? The one that's currently uh on TV um or would you like to start with the absolute um ass wiping that the Astros are doing on the White Sox right now? Well, here's the way I look at it. We started with sadness for the wild card discussions and I'm thinking this time we start with sadness again. And we talk about the White Sox as almost a palate cleanser because trust me, ladies and gentlemen, okay. Tom and I are going to be doing so much clowning on the <laughs> Chicago White Sox. It's going to make our White Sox fan of a friend whose name is Max cry like a baby in the corner as if his team isn't already doing that. So let's get. Yeah, I, I, th- I, I think people on Twitter the other day, I think it was um, our other friend like did, Max Millstar or something. Did you see sent, like a tweet that said, don't let at Max Sacco see this on twitter and it was like the white Sox score (laughs) i remember that it was i think john boy media posted something about like oh al central teams are like three like three wins in their last 20 tries of the postseason (laughs) we'll save this for the section where we clown on the white Sox because trust me no team is bringing us more joy right now than the chicago white Sox. for now let's talk about the Sox team that's actually that actually looks like a baseball team and not a Harlem okay. Globetrotters-esque farce. So, Red Sox versus Tampa Bay Rays, Tom. Why don't you why don't you take us through game one? The game one where Tampa Bay actually looked like Tampa Bay. So, game one of the ALDS between the Tampa Bay Rays and the Boston Red Sox. I think there's only one name that comes to mind. Well, there's actually a couple names that come to mind. Some for bad things to happen. But one who you wrote down as his nickname, Senor Octubre, in game one, hit the clip. There's a guy who hits his name, Randy Rosarena. Every time he takes a swing, it is a thing. It's Cosa Buena. Running around the bases, he's as fast as a hyena. Oh, Rosarena. Hi. Yes, ladies and gentlemen and everybody listening, Randy f***ing Rosarena. Pardon my French for the F word, by the way. But Randy a Rosarena. How many times have I had to censor you for that? Now you apologize. I'm never sorry. Six episodes in, guys. Sorry, I'll 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 try. Except I f***ing won't. And then I Randy f***ing a Rosarena. Yeah. Oh, is that a home run? Oh for... yeah. Now you just said it twice. <laughs> well, this is still probably in your half of the video. So have fun editing it. <laughs> I had to edit your Kevin Mather tirade last week, and 
<laughs> oh, by the way, you missed an F bomb in the last two minutes of the show. Did last I actually? Week. Son of a bitch. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I'm just gonna leave this in to the edit because well. I think this is a good conversation. <laughs> anyway, we're going off topic. Randy Rosarena. Randy Rosarena. Where can we start with Randy Rosarena, Tony? Um, how about the fact that he's just casually the next coming of Randy Jack Randy Jackson. Reggie Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm You got outst- this dog. I'm outstanding saying you got this dog. So, Randy Rosarena, in this game one of the American League Divisional Series, casually decided to put on put on an encore of what he did in last year's postseason, which, in case you forgot, he set the record with most home... He set the record for most home runs in a single postseason. And had the Rays actually prevailed, in spite of their Manager of the Year award-winning manager, uh, he would have taken home playoff and World Series MVP. No question. One of the best postseasons we've seen ever. So what did he do in game one? Well, nothing huge. Nothing huge at all. Just hit a critical, you know, critical solo home run. And, oh yeah, he also stole home. Yeah, uh, I believe, I believe it was, who was on the mound? It was, I believe it was Josh Taylor. It was Josh, it was Josh Taylor, because I have a bunch of stats pulled up on the Rosarina, but I'll let you finish. Yeah, it was Josh Taylor who was in the game, just trying to, you know, stem the bleeding. The Red Sox offense was uh, squandering every single opportunity they had early in the game. They just wanted to stem, you know, stop them from scoring. And Randy Rosarena says no. He says no, because Josh Taylor takes a fortnight and a half to get the ball to Christian Vasquez behind the plate. Rosarena memorizes his windup, takes a look, bolts for the plate. Dudes, mind you, he was like halfway down the line before Taylor even got into his motion, even started his windup. By the time he already did, he did like a little shimmy. He like looks down at first, even though there's no one there. Rosarena's already like 80% of the way to the plate before the ball leaves Taylor's hand. It's not even a close play. Every single soul in Tropicana Field, trust me, I had no idea Tampa had that many fans. They only show up when they make the postseason. I'm thinking back to 20, uh, 2011, you know, the Dan Johnson and Evan Longoria home runs. But even though that wasn't in the postseason, nevertheless, everybody in that building went crazy. Rosarena himself started, you know, pumping his chest. The race dug out, I think lost its mind and... I, I was watching that. I distinctly remember I was watching that game with a good friend of mine and my mom. Both of them just looked at me like, what just happened? Yeah. So what I was going to say about Rosarena, by the way, I'm looking at an article from June Lee of ESPN right now. It's like a game uh, one recap. So a Rosarena, not, he became the first player in a playoff history to steal home and hit a home run in the same game during that victory. The swipe of home plate marked the first steal of home in a playoff game since 2016 when Javi Baez pulled the feet off in the NLCS. The first straight steal of home in a playoff game since the famous Jackie Robinson steal against Yogi Berra in 1955. So yeah, Rosarena continues to make history despite setting postseason records with 10 home runs, 29 hits in 20 games during last year's 2020 playoffs. Um... And apparently this is something that's been brewing for a couple weeks now, according to Rays manager Kevin Cash. He said a Rosarena had been asking him about stealing home for weeks. During the 2020 World Series, um, Manuel Margot of the Rays was thrown out when he attempted a similar steal off Dodger star Clayton Kershaw. But apparently a Rosarena kept insisting, and this is a quote from Kevin Cash, he asked me all season long, Verde, 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 green light. We finally gave it to him. And guess what? That made for probably the 
best, definitely, the, I think probably one of the best moments of the postseason so far, besides that Chris Taylor home run, probably the best postseason moment so far in 2021. Also, one of the best photos, I think, was taken of like an overhead shot of a Rosarena like head first sliding into home plate, and I don't even think the ball is in uh, Christian Vasquez's glove yet at that point, so that was fun. Um, but yeah, that's why I wanted to say about a Rosarena. Dude went off in game one, and that's ultimately what led Tampa to their victory. Absolutely did. A Rosarena was the spark plug for the offense in that game, but I think what really won Tampa that game, and this is an aspect that has not showed up in games two and three, and we'll get to that, their pitching in game one was light out. They became the first team, or I, I just scratched it, I believe the second team ever to start rookies in games one and two. And spoiler alert, one of the two Shanes did very, very, uh, very, very well. That being game one starter, Shane McClanahan. He went five innings, allowed five hits, no earned runs, didn't walk anybody either, and he struck out three. They then handed the ball off to, I'm going to butcher this, get ready, JT, uh, Char- Chargios, I believe is how you say that. Chargios, I should know how to say that by now. Well, your guess is as good as mine, Tony. <laughs> he didn't allow a run. David Robertson didn't either. And then J.P. Fireisen put the nail in the coffin. Didn't allow a single run all game. Tampa Bay shutout. Boston never even had a shot. They did collect nine hits. But much like the Cardinals in the wild card game, they just couldn't get anybody to scamper home. They were one for seven with runners in scoring. So game one, absolute domination from Tampa Bay. I think it's what I expected. It's what a lot of folks expected when the Red Sox got this far. Tampa Bay has just been a well-oiled machine, especially pitching-wise all year. But come Game 2, Tom, why don't you talk to us about Game 2? Because, yeah, the wheels are starting to fall off for Tampa Bay a little bit. Well, let's start with the very beginning of the game. So, um, one inning pitched for Mr. Chris Sale, tied the lowest on his career, according to Tony, on the rundown. The Red Sox, I believe, took a 2 nothing or a one nothing lead. They tweeted at the Rays, like, we're enjoying this game so far. And then Jordan Luplo, or Luplo of all people, decides to clobber a bomb off of Chris Sale that also happened to be a grand slam. The Rays responded back to that tweet in shots fired almost against the Red Sox. I think even Freezing Cold Takes on Twitter retweeted that. But hold the phone... Because the Red Sox took that personally. Jesus Christ. The Red Sox ended up scoring 14 runs on 20 hits in that game. So yeah, Tampa squandered lead. I thought the game was already over. I was laughing my ass off for about five minutes when Chris Sale gave up that grand slam. I'm like, ha ha ha, sucks to be Boston. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't suck to be them. They won 14 to 6. Um, but as Tony alluded to, alluded to Shane Boz, he only went two and a third inning pitch, two strikeouts. He gave up a home run, gave up a walk, three earned runs and six hits. And then it was a disaster the rest of the way through. That's when Tampa started to uh, throw kind of their crappy pitchers, I would almost say, um, after Colin McHugh. But Tony, do you think that granted, um, I don't remember the exact situation, but do you think Kevin Cash maybe pulled Shane Boz just a little bit too early and didn't give his rookie pitcher enough confidence? I truly think he did. This has been a problem Kevin Cash has had for pretty much as long as he's been manager of the Rays. Tom, you alluded to it earlier because Kevin Cash would never take out a starter who's doing really well, say, in a really important game that's do or die for that specific team. I mean, I can't think of a single Blake Snell incident in which that happened. No, he's on the Padres now. What, what would have happened? Oh, that's right. Silly me. Padres ace Blake Snell. <laughs> so, 
Shane Boz, granted, got himself into trouble. He did allow three runs, and he did, I, I believe he did leave men on base when Kevin Cash came to get him. But my question is, why do you then turn to Colin, like, I, I guess I, turning to Colin McHugh actually was not the problem, because Colin McHugh had something of a renaissance year this year. He was really great for them um, throughout the regular season. I really think in that situation, though, like, granted, this is coming from me, someone who has never been a coach in Major League Baseball. This is just my perception of what has worked in the past and what I perceive could have worked with the benefit of hindsight. That's the time where you send your pitching coach out there and try and talk him off a ledge. Just try and calm him down, settle him down a little bit. Because if memory serves, they didn't have a single mound visit. Kevin Cash just pulled the plug and said, all right, good job, Rook, good job, kid, come on. We'll we'll preserve this lead for you, we'll... Uh, We'll get, we'll get you out of this, don't worry. Because at the time, he only gave up the two runs in the first inning. The, the score was 5-2. to two. You could have easily just sent... I, I, I can't remember who the race pitching coach is off the top of my head. You could have sent just him out there to talk him down. Just be like, look, just settle down. We have... Um, who hit that home run for the Red Sox in the third? I believe it was Hernandez or... Uh, no, sorry. It was, um, it was Verdugo who hit the home run off of uh, Colin McHugh driving in Shane Boz's run that he allowed on base. He said... Could have just said, look, get this, just get this guy. You're almost out of the inning. You're two outs away. Maybe give him some advice of what to throw him and then see where it goes from there. Now, if Verdugo gets to him, that's different. But considering there wasn't a mound visit, considering Shane Boz was great to end the year, and considering you could have saved Colin McHugh for later in the game, McHugh only pitched one and two thirds. And for as good of a year as he had, I, I think they could have squeezed a little more out of Boz to in turn get a little more out of McHugh, because guess what happened? They brought in Michael Walker towards the end of the game, and he gave up six runs. Yeah, this <laughs> game could have been in much... This this game could have been in a much closer reach for the Rays, but I think thanks to their bullpen management, they absolutely shot themselves in the foot here. See, you know, I actually don't think it's the worst thought in the world, pulling Shane Boss, because now you see managers, like, relying on their bullpens more and more in the postseason ever since, really, Terry Francona kind of did that with Andrew Miller back in 2016 during that run. That's something that teams have adopted. Honestly, with a rookie pitcher on the mound, I don't think it was the worst thought at the time, considering how strong Tampa Bay's bullpen is on paper. But I, st I still got to question the move by Kevin Cash because he has this long lineage of history that we keep alluding to of pulling people a little bit too early. But um, we keep talking about how the Rays kind of shot themselves in the foot. But you got to give credit to the Red Sox in this situation, oh, too. Yeah. I'm looking at Kike Hernandez, who had a 5-for-6 game. Xander Bogarts had a 3-for-5 game. Alex Verdugo had a 3-for-5 game. J.D. Martinez, what happened to your sprained ankle, buddy? I guess that's all fine now. Go ahead and touch second base on your way out to right field. Apparently, that's a superstition for him, and that's how he sprained his ankle. He went 4-for-5 in that game. And uh, also see Christian Vasquez at the bottom of the lineup went 3-for-5 as well. So this was just a slaughtering of this Boston offense that is potent at times, but it's just silent in others. But I think they kind of got, I think maybe Alex Cora maybe gave him a little bit of a pep talk, either in that dugout once they got behind and Chris Sale came off the mound, or maybe it was after game one going into game two that, come on guys, we know we're capable of this. We can do this. We're going against Tampa. They're strong. But ultimately, they have their weak suits. We just got to wait for our pitches and clobber them. And that's what Boston did. And obviously, it worked because they had 20 hits and they scored 14 runs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hearkening back to what we predicted in last week's episode. By the way, we were both wrong in this regard, which 
Sue us. Yeah. Sue us. We're Yankees fans. Yeah, I, I also would like to point out, I went 0 for 2 with the wild card game predictions, and uh, if Tampa loses this game, uh, my World Series pick is also going to be going out the window. <laughs> I, don't worry. If the Rays lose, mine will be too, but I at least have the Dodgers for now. So yeah, hearkening back to those predictions, neither of us really had concerns about Boston's hitting. We mostly picked the Yankees off of right. they were riding a hotter hand and Boston's pitching wasn't as strong. We looked at Nady Evaldi and said, yeah, he's good, but if they can get the ball out of his hand, they'd have a chance. First of all, we were dead wrong about Evaldi. Dude went straight back to 2018 for him. There's a reason he's called Nasty Nate. And even right now, he's still pitching in game three that I'm watching right now. He's held the race to two runs and it's in the fifth inning. Not only has Nady Evaldi proved us wrong, I think even though we gave their offense credit, Guys like Bogarts, guys like Devers, guys like Martinez, even unheralded guys like Vasquez. Kike Hernandez, where did he even come from? I, I still think we undersold them, Tom. And again, 14 runs on 20 hits is insane. They're already getting to the Rays here in Game 3. I want to also give props to Kyle Schwarber. Great deadline acquisition for the Red Sox. Honestly, I, I know they got underhanded, you know, outbid for Anthony Rizzo uh, by the Yankees. But I think they got the much better prize in Schwarber. He's been hitting fantastically for them this offseason. He's already two for two as I speak with a solo home run today. So if the, if the Red Sox are going anywhere else this postseason, it's going to be off the back of that offense. Again, not to discredit Nathan Eovaldi, not to discredit Tanner Houck, who, by the way, casually pitched five innings of one-run ball yesterday. That one run was a G-Man Choi home run. That probably should have been fan interference. Probably. But fantastic work from young Tanner Houck. He did exactly what Shane Boz should have been able to do. Also, has one of the nastiest sliders in the game. I would like to point that out. That too. That too. Tanner Houck, high key next year, is going to be scary in that Red Sox rotation. That was game two. Game three, obviously, is going on right now. Um, we'll talk more in depth about it once the game is finalized. Uh, we'll probably talk about that next week when we're just closing out who won this individual series. Wh whoever it is, me and Tom are both going to be pissed. Yeah, I, I think honestly, if Boston wins, I don't know how I'll feel about that because I want Boston to lose just because I hate Boston more than I hate Tampa. Because with Tampa, they've just beat the Yankees down for the past couple of years. The Red Sox, we have that distinct rivalry and they took us out of the postseason. But at the same time, I almost smile if the Red Sox beat the Rays in this series just because they're knocking off Tampa. And I'm like, huh, if Boston can do it, surely somebody else can do it next year should the Rays return to the postseason. It, it just makes the Rays seem like they're not this unstoppable force in the American League. So I would smile at that, but that smile would be kind of half-assed because it's Boston. Well, the Red Sox also have an actual manager in their uh in their dugout and a gm who knows what he's doing yeah a very great gm and a very great manager see yankees take notes this is what the system can do when you have good philosophy and a strong foundation you got high and bloom i don't think he's or he might be the gm i think he's base president of baseball operations but you got him and you got core there they're like glue they're inseparable you pull them apart bad things will happen but when they stick together Great things will happen, and that's what's happening in Boston right now. After their disastrous 2020 season, they've, they've turned it around big time, and they could be a legit World Series threat if they knock off Tampa. Honestly, I don't see a reason. they, Considering they're probably playing the Astros, we will get to that in just one second, but I totally agree with you that if they knock off Tampa right here, no matter who they're playing, the Sox, huh, that's funny, 
or the Houston Astros. They're going to ride the hotter hand because they beat the better team. And they just look more together right now. Obviously, we can't predict right now what's going to happen in Game 4. If, if they take Game 3, I don't see a reason they don't take Game 4. Both pitchers are to be uh, to be determined at the moment. I don't think Tampa has a real lockdown pitcher that they can turn to in Game 4 unless they go back to McClanahan. Mm-hmm. Knowing Kevin Cash's reputation, I don't want to guarantee anything. But Boston's probably going back to... Uh, they're probably going back to Chris Sale. Grant, uh, Oh no! But by the way, he'll be in the bullpen. No, now. I was gonna. Chris Hale will be coming out of the. He's gonna be coming out of the bullpen because I think he went to Alex Corners. Like, yeah, I've sucked. I'm going into the bullpen. Now. I was gonna say. I just. I actually just saw that article. So, oh, they're probably not going back to Chris Sale. In that case, I wouldn't know who they're going to. So it's gonna be hard for us to predict Game Four. It's really gonna depend on Game Three if the Rays can mount a comeback. They actually just got Joey Wendell uh, into scoring position here in the fifth, but. We'll see. How about we talk about a series we can more accurately predict and more accurately say, yeah, there's one favorite here. And if it's the other team, if the other team even has a chance, it's in some other parallel dimension. Tom, Astros White Sox, you're ready to laugh because we're going to do a lot of laughing. See, I don't know if the White Sox should wave the white flag or the White Sox. That's their mascot of the organization because, oh, dear God in heaven, have they played so terribly. Like, first of all, I'm not even going to tell you the score of game one. You already know what happened. I just want to read this stat from ESPN Stats and Info on Twitter. So Lance Lynn, we all know him. Cy Young candidate for the past couple of years. He's looked really good. I think he's a fastball specialist um, where he relies on, like, I think his two-seam, if he has one, a cutter and a four-seam or whatever he does. He threw 76 pitches in game one. 74 of them, 97.4%, were fastballs. The highest fastball rate by any starting pitcher in a playoff game in the pitch tracking era, which was since 2008. The Astros hit 290 against fastballs in the regular season, the best in the MLB. So great matchup there, Tony LaRusa. Great strategy going into that game with Lance Lynn. Granny, you would have expected him to be a little bit better because he is Lance Lynn after all. But you got to mix up the pitches a little bit, man. And now we look at the score, and I actually don't have it pulled up on my computer, but Tony can probably tell you what that score was. And that's probably why Lancelin gave up five runs and three and two-thirds innings pitched in Houston's Game 1 romp of Chicago. Yeah, Lancelin was picked apart by the Astros, chiefly for that reason. Tom, I knew that the Astros hit fastballs well. A, I didn't know they hit them that well. And B, I didn't know Lancelin threw that many fastballs because like you said he'll rely on that two-seamer he's got a cutter that works for him but holy when you have kyle tucker who annihilates fastballs you have jordan alvarez who can murder baseballs you have jose altuve and carlos correa who correa pretty much only hit fastballs this year he was terrible against off speed and that's how you get the six to one defeat lance little had five of those the other one i believe came from yeah ronaldo lopez who uh relieved lynn in the fourth inning, actually, Lynn only went three and two-thirds. Let's also not, like, we're going to clown on the White Sox. Let's also not forget how bad the White Sox hitting was today. Or, not today, that day. They did get eight hits. Uh, pardon me, seven hits. I can't read. They did get seven. A pair from Luis Robert, who's actually hitting fantastic so far. It's only it's only been two games, but I think he has, I think he has like, five or six hits. Like Luis Robert has been. Yeah, he's got a set. Yeah, he's got a seven fourteen batting average in the postseason. Yeah, Luis Robert. I don't know why. What what does he have him batting? 
Tony La Russa batted him fifth in game one. Okay, I hope he was batting higher for game two. Otherwise, I get to call Tony La Russa. He batted second for game two. Okay. Damn, I can't call Tony La Russa a clown for that. Okay. Well, you can still call him a clown because of what happened in game two. I, oh, dear God. We'll get there. But <laughs> game one, it was a battle of the Lances. Lance Land versus Lance McCullers. And even with the matchup, I expected Land to come out on top just because I thought he pitched fantastic all year. I think he had a good uh, matchup against the Astros earlier in the uh, earlier in the season. And I figured, yeah, the, the Astros hit fastballs well. But Lance Lynn throws one of the best fastballs in the game. Like you said, Tom, fastball specialist is the perfect way to describe him. I thought he'd fare better, but it turns out it was the other Lance, the Lance draped in orange in Lance McCullers, who came out on top. Six and two-thirds, didn't allow a run, only four hits, zero walks, and four strikeouts. And I want to sort of make an addendum to what I said in the previous episode about playoff predictions. Tom, you got the wild card wrong, but mind you, I predicted the White Sox to win this series, man. I was hoping. Hey, hey, guess what I said? I said this series was going to be a wash. I will even find the audio from last week and insert it just to make sure. And just to prove, I said this is going to be a wash in Houston's favor. For some reason in my mind, I projected that the Yankees or the White Sox would go to the CS and one of them would go to the World Series. This year, I don't think that's going to be the case. I don't think either team is going to make the CS. And I really hate talking good about the Astros. I, I think this is going to be a wash, honestly. And I hate to say it, but I think Houston had... I'm just going to say it. I think Houston has the White Sox number here. But I think this whole, like, game one and even game two, where you haven't even talked about that, about that yet, but I'm going to jump the gun and say this just proves that if they don't come back and they get swept in this series, Chicago was one of the best teams on paper... But when you're going against competition such as the Cleveland to-be-named Guardians, the Kansas City Royals, the Minnesota um, didn't-show-up-this-year team, the Twins, <laughs> and the Detroit Tigers all year in an easy AL Central, you're kind of lowering the bar and lowering the pressure when other teams have had to play in higher pressure and higher leverage situations this year. And the White Sox really haven't had that too much. They kind of were... They could have cartwheeled 162 games and they still would have won the division this was easily predictable and it's just showing that maybe they're just not on good as paper because they're in a weak division and their competition hasn't matched them all year so i don't know maybe they just didn't show up or maybe tony larousse is just not the right 70 whatever year old to be leading this team you know what tom it's funny you mentioned the central because i said last week in defending the white Sox oh, the White Sox feel different from the Indians or the Guardians. I'm going to hate that so much next year. I might just go with Spiders. That sounds way better. <laughs> but I said that the White Sox felt different because they had a more well-rounded uh, lineup rather than just Cleveland relying on Lindor and Ramirez and a couple of the role players. I thought their rotation overall was better, although Cleveland did have you know Kluber, Bauer in his prime, and Cookie Carrasco back when he was good. I thought the White Sox were different. I did. And I can only really imagine this is how it feels like to, you know, like draft the same guy in fantasy that does terrible for you both years or going like getting back with your ex thinking that they've changed and then realizing they haven't at all. Like th this this must be what it feels like to be a White Sox fan or a fan of an AL Central team in general because they're just proving me wrong again. I had my doubts about the Indians last year against the Yankees and I was right. But now I trusted another one, and I feel so... I, I don't want to say hurt, because I'm not a fan of the White Sox. I have no affiliation to the White Sox. 
But I almost feel betrayed. Like, come on, you were supposed to be different. You were supposed to be the one that destroyed the stereotype of Hardy Har, AL Central Team Bad, because they play the Tigers every every other week. But no, Tom, I'm starting, if, especially if they get swept, that's exactly what the White Sox look like right now. They're throwing out Dylan Cease for Game 3 tomorrow. It'll be over by the time um, we've posted this. Expect a tweet when we tweet about the episode. Who knows? Maybe the audiogram will be this. And it'll be, the caption will say, wow, this age, this age great after the White Sox inevitably get swept. But with all this clowning we do on the White Sox, much like we did with the Rays and Reds, uh, Reds, Red Sox. <laughs> I, well, I mean, we did clown on the Reds a lot this year. I, we did, but sadly we can't anymore because that team's not good enough to go anywhere past September. We do have to give credit to Houston because as bad as the White Sox have been, the Astros have been exactly what they needed to be. They are the team with the most playoff pedigree in the American League right now. They've been there and done that. Pretty much all their hairs have shown up so far. Strangely enough, the only guy somewhat slumping is the guy who won the AL batting title in Yuli uh, Gurriel. And one part I want to highlight, and this is that addendum I wanted to make earlier, I said that the bullpens of both of these teams was comparable, and the White Sox had the edge because they have Liam Hendricks. Holy sh**, was I wrong. I Not only... Not only has their bullpen straight up not... I, I believe they haven't allowed a run. In game one, they actually might have. No. The Astros' bullpen has given up one run, and it was Kendall Graveman. Everyone else, the Phil Matones, or Phil Matons, rather, of the world, Yimmy Garcia, uh, Ryan Presley, not even given up a run yet. Meanwhile, you look at our good friends in the White Sox. Oh, Craig Kimbrell. Craig Kimbrell, Craig Kimbrell, Craig Kimbrell. You remember when they traded Nick Madrigal, Craig Kimbrell? Like, I was iffy about that deal at the time, because obviously Craig Kimbrell's just going to be a rental. Who knows if he keeps up production? But if he does, it'll at least look okay. Like, he got them far in the playoffs. Not only has he prolapsed in the regular season, but he went two-thirds of an inning yesterday. Yesterday, i.e. Saturday. Gave up two runs and allowed Aaron Bummer's runs, who were already on base, to score. So not only does this acquisition look f***ing terrible now for the White Sox, but you gave up your second baseman of the future for him. And all he's given you is pain and suffering. His ERA in the postseason is 27. Good job, White Sox. <laughs> I'm honestly curious what Craig Kimbrell's uh, ERA in the regular season what was with the White Sox, I, oh, if we got baseball reference would load. We got to see it the was, split. So it was 409, it was, or excuse me, oh, no. it was 0 0.49 with the Cubs in 24 games with the White Sox. It was 509. 509? Yeah, he only got one save in that time, by the way, because <laughs> Liam Hendricks is there. Um, He pitched, uh, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, 23 innings, gave up 13 earned runs, uh, and I, I don't have to go through the stats. That's a terrible ERA. We already know the story. Jesus um, Christ. But yeah, so the White, the Astros took advantage of the bummer that they threw on the mound in Aaron, and then the collapsing Kimbrel and scored five runs unanswered for in the seventh inning and went on to win that game 9-4. to four. I'm doing my mental math in my head. And it was tied 4-4 going into that bottom of the seventh. And then the White Sox just completely the bed like they normally do. This is why they get laughed on. 
Um, their offense, again, did show up. Their top of the order did well in that game. Tim Anderson, Luis Robert, each had three hits. Jose Abreu had two hits. The bottom of the lineup after that, eh. not so good. Um, also, I should point out the White Sox left 20 runners on base during this game. Jesus. 20. In- and Yasmani Grandal and his at-bats left six in total. Um, so good for, good for you. Uh, here's looking at you, kid. Um, wow. Yeah. It, it's just a train wreck. Again, you got to give credit to this Houston offense. I completely forget who I should probably know this about what the hell happened in the seventh inning. Oh, yeah. Uh, I can tell you right now. Jordan Alvarez, he singled on a ground ball to center field. That scored Jose Altuve. Carlos Correa hit a double uh, to right field uh, past Larry Garcia. Alex Bregman scored, and Jordan Alvarez scored. And then Kyle Tucker did Kyle Tucker things. He hit a uh, two-run home run, and then that's what gave them the five runs in that inning so yeah they just completely eviscerated them i don't think there's much more we can really talk about this series with because the white Sox has just been playing so bad i expect them to fully get swept tonight even though they're in chicago houston just got the pedigree that chicago doesn't have i completely agree with you there it's going to be dylan cease versus luis garcia rookie of the year candidate for the astros he pitched really well this year granted so did cease i believe he actually finished top five in American League strikeouts. I actually didn't know that. Dylan C's had an underrated year, but I'm with you, Tom. I don't see this team going anywhere. If they even make it to game four, I, how do you even survive from there? Because they're going to be able to go back to McCullers, who pitched great. So I'm going to completely agree with you. This is a Houston series to lose. If they somehow choke, I will have much laughter. But rest assured, if the White Sox get swept, there will also be much laughter. So that'll do it in terms of the American League Divisional Series. But before we get into the National League Series, Tom, I believe you have a question for me. I do have a question, and is and that question is, can you dig it? And by that mean, yes, by that I, I mean, can. are you ready for my trivia question? <laughs> Excellent. So trivia two this week comes on the heels of something that I really wanted to do a deep drive into left over last week. Ultimately, opted not to. And this could still be a future deep drive into left. So, with the Tampa Bay Rays officially looking to become the Montreal Bay Devil Expos by 2028, and one of the most boneheaded decisions I can think of in recent baseball history, it got me thinking about teams being relocated. So I'm not going to ask you for the last team to do so, because that's obviously the Washington Nationals. That moved away from the aforementioned Montreal, by the way. So, great, you're just going to go to a market that didn't want one team. They didn't want to pay for a stadium for a team. And you're going to bring in the Tampa Bay Rays. Woo, the least attended team in the big leagues. You're going to want them in your city. Anyway, that's not the issue. Tony, which team was the first to relocate in MLB history? And what was the team name? Who did they become? And if you could tell me what year, that'd be great, but I'm not going to require that. Oh, Christ, the first one ever. Okay. Oof, okay. And there's a lot of there's a lot of history between this. I think we could devote a whole episode to the history between behind this because I was reading it and I was like, holy crap. The history of relocations uh, or anyway. this specific relocation? This this the team that became the relocated team, when they relocated to that location, there was a lot of history going on um with that team. Okay. Anyway, so a few teams came to my head. I, I don't my first thought, actually, I don't think I went far back enough. My first thought was the Washington Senators becoming the Minnesota Twins. That's I don't think that's it. 
I don't think that's no, it. That's not it. You're gonna have. To, I, I'm. You're gonna have to go back a very long time. <laughs> yeah, I need to think like Boston Braves type teams, like when they moved, or I believe there was a team. I I don't think the Yankees were originally. You know what's funny? I remember being on the train one day and watching a video of how each team got its name, and this was on YouTube. Very good video. It deep dived, uh, deep dived. It deep dived pretty much every team's relocation. I'm trying to revisit that video in my head, even though I watched it months ago, and see which one of these occurred first. Because my first thought, like I said, Boston Braves. I believe they moved from Boston to Milwaukee to become the Milwaukee Braves, and then they went to Atlanta. That I know is they did. That I know is the timeline, but I don't know if Boston was the first one. So I'll I'll guide you in the right direction. That. Mm-hmm relocation happened in 1953 that is way too nope not the boston braves granted there were only granted there were only two relocations before that happened and you were on the right track with one of them when you were thinking about the yankees they had another name at the time that was the highlanders that's not the answer though i know this but do you do you remember what year that was wait wait the answer you said it's not the highlanders right it's not the Highlanders. It's not that. It's not the Yankees. Because I know there was another... Oh, wait, it's not the Yankees. It's not the Yankees at all. It's not the Yankees at all. Oh, shit. Okay. Um, that, that was the Yankees. They started in Baltimore, and then they became the <clears throat> New York Highlanders in 1903. That's what I was thinking of, because I knew they became the Highlanders and eventually the Yankees. I knew they came somewhere in Bal- uh, from somewhere in Baltimore. But there was one before that that happened one year prior. Son of a bitch. Okay. Okay, I gotta think. Oh, wait a minute. Why am I thinking of Cleveland? Why am I thinking of Cleveland? Am I on the wrong track? Your face didn't change. I'm on the wrong track, aren't Te- I? Technically, I could say you're on the right track because Cleveland's owner Bill Vec. Or I'm I'm not gonna get into that part yet. But you're on the right track. It's not Cleveland, but Bill Vec has something to do with this franchise that became the relocated franchise later on in its history. Okay, uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to throw an answer out there because I don't think I'm going to get this 100% right. I'm going to kick myself for this. I know it. Let's go with, um, I'm going to say, like, how do you want me to give this answer? Do you want me to say, like, the present day team, like, what they became? Because my, my mind yeah, is thinking can, Cubs you, you for some s- reason. Uh, well, you're not right. Um uh-huh. I, I was looking for, like, the original team and then the team they became. Okay. Okay. Uh, I don't think I'm going to have a clue. Then. It, especially, it's not the Cubs. So, for some reason, I think it's, like, a Central-esque team. It's obviously not the Yankees. It's not going to be the Red Sox. Oh, wait. Could it be the Red Sox? I'm thinking way too much. In, it's not the Red Sox. I'm thinking way too much for a question I'm probably not getting right anyway. <laughs> I'm going to say this was the... I don't know, the Cincinnati, the Cleveland Redlegs, because I, I didn't talk about the Reds yet. I think the team they became is the Reds, but their original team name, uh, that's that's tough. I can't think of it. I'll say like the Red, the Red Stockings. The Red Stockings became the Cincinnati Reds, and I think they were always based in Cincinnati. I could be wrong on that. But at any rate, that's not the answer. So the first team to relocate, and I'll actually give you credit for thinking about the New York Highlanders. It's funny because that Highlanders team was originally the Baltimore Orioles. And the Baltimore Orioles were the inception team of the team that actually got relocated. 
because the first team that relocated was the Milwaukee Brewers to the St. Louis Browns in 1902. So I believe this is when the American League merged and became like a major league. Yeah, there was a league that became the American League at the end of the 1900 baseball season. They would The American League would break from the national agreement and become a major competing league. The Milwaukee Brewers, they were one of the two teams that wasn't thrown out of the league. The other was the Detroit Tigers. And the Milwaukee Brewers at the time, that's why they became the Brewers later on in their history, they moved to St. Louis to become the Browns in 1902. Now, why I said Bill Veck, he actually owned the St. Louis Browns at one point and pretty much made them a mockery. But the St. Louis Browns would later become what is now known today as the Baltimore Orioles. So technically, this franchise dates is the Baltimore Orioles, but it dates back a lot longer than that. I will honestly give you half credit, though, Tony, for thinking of the Highlanders answer, because this was a tough question. I, You know what sucks? I I knew bits and pieces of that. Like, I'm a, I watch way too many videos of baseball history just on YouTube when I'm bored and I have nothing else to do. I knew bits and pieces. When you talked about the St. Louis Browns, when you talked about, like, my, my mind goes to then, oh, when they became the perfectos for a little bit. Like, Foolish Baseball had a video about that. And the, the Milwaukee Brewers, like the 1901 Milwaukee Brewers, I think SB Nation and their Seattle Mariners uh, little mini documentary did something about that. Eh, GG's, good question. That was a good, that was a tough one. God damn it, I forgot there were like three different Milwaukee Brewers. Yeah, because the Seattle Pilots eventually became the Milwaukee Brewers, I believe, in the 60s into the 70s, because I think the Pilots only played like one year in Seattle before they dipped to Milwaukee because their stadium situation was terrible. <laughs> um, that's the modern-day Milwaukee Brewers, Yep. by the way. But this one dates back to the 1900s, which I didn't even know until today when I looked up to see what I could ask you for trivia. But at any rate, let's shift away from that because we are very well into our recording we're actually at an hour and a half tony oh, jesus already all right uh well yeah so let's move on to the nlds we talked about the alds matchups let's talk about the nlds um so you've got four really good teams here that you can argue have kind of been the four best teams in the National League, I think that's kind of a convoluted sentence because the Atlanta Braves are one of those teams, and I don't think they've been one of the four best in the National <laughs> League, per se, throughout the entire year. But at any rate, Tony, where would you like to start? In Atlanta, the modern-day versus the modern-day Milwaukee Brewers, or would you like to start in what I call the compensation um, reward for not having the Yankees in the postseason, the Dodgers or the Giants? Well, I was going to say, in, in line with talking about the Brewers, we should start with them, but... Hey, the Dodgers and Giants, I think so far as living up to the hype of that exciting little postseason series that we were all anticipating. So in the same vein as where we were with the ALDS and starting with top-seeded team versus wildcard team, let's start with Dodgers-Giants. Game one of this series, it made my prediction of Giants over Dodgers look really, really good as the Giant bats. I want to cite this exactly how I wrote it in the... Rundown, because I think I wrote it really well. The Giants' bats truly came alive against Walker Bueller, NL Cy Young candidate, to back Web Gem. I say Web Gem because the pitcher was Logan Webb. My puns are amazing. Tom Bowers giving Tom is giving me the Javi Baez treatment right now. Two thumbs down. 
I think that's hilarious. But more about the Giants that day. Logan, uh, it, what's that? It was hilarious. I'll give you that. It, it was hilarious. I'll give you it that. It was hilarious. Hilarious. Logan Webb's uh, official pitching line, seven and two thirds, the longest a game one starter went this postseason uh, thus far, of course. Allowed five hits, didn't walk anybody, struck out ten. Ten Dodgers this man struck out. I was kind of concerned, or not concerned, but I was I was interested when Logan Webb was uh, penciled in as the game one starter. I thought that um, Gabe Kapler was going to go with Kevin Gossman, considering he had more, uh, he had a better season overall, even though Webb finished the year a little better than Gossman did. But clearly, this is why I'm not a big league manager, and Logan Webb pitched fantastically. And this is not to discount the Giants hitting. They had seven hits total. Buster Posey with a towering oppo taco over that over that little right field wall. And if it didn't hit that little chimney that they've got there in Oracle Park, probably would have gone right into McCovey Cove or right near McCovey Cove, well, it, which it, it actually did go into McCovey or, Cove. It hit I, the thing and I, then it went into McCovey. I Cove. meant on the fly. I meant more he hit it. It goes straight oh, into the water because okay. it would have been a splash hit directly. Trust me, uh, whichever. Whichever network broadcasted that did well to show the fella in the water who got that home run ball. But <laughs> he he did well. Chris Bryant collected three hits. He's been fantastic for the Giants as much as we talk about, you know, oh, it's a ragtag group of misfits. They, they have a former MVP on that team, and he's doing former MVP things. Two former MVPs on that That's team. right. Buster Posey won as well. And there's honestly not much to say about the Dodgers today. Walker Bueller did not. Walker Bueller... He did allow three runs in six and a third. Not perfect. He did. But he didn't do poorly. Like, you can't pin this Dodgers loss solely on Walker Bueller. You have to look at that hitting and say, okay, where did Trey Turner go? Where did Justin Turner go? Between games one and two, they have a combined one hit. That's discounting Turner, Justin Turner's uh, wildcard game home run. But most of the Dodgers uh, lay hitless. Mookie Betts had two hits. Will Smith had two hits. No one else. Uh, Corey Seager had one hit. Every other Dodgers hitter held to nothing. They obviously turned this around in game two, but just an all-around bad effort by the Dodgers. Good effort, really good effort by the Giants. Yeah, I, I was going to pretty much echo your thoughts. Tony. A very great gem of a game, a web gem, as you so rightfully put it, <laughs> by the 24-year-old Logan Webb. Um, his pitches were simply unhittable. They were filthy. Throughout the entire game, I remember Rob Freeman, a.k.a. Pitching Ninja, a.k.a. Twitter Jesus, um, was highlighting it on his timeline the entire night. I think I actually watched part of this game, too, when I was at work. There's not enough good things that I can say about how Logan Webb pitched that I don't think many people nationally knew Logan Webb's name coming into this, probably because he just emerged out of nowhere this year after having like a 5 ERA to start off his previous two years in his career. But obviously, people know who Logan Webb is now, and maybe he'll evolve into almost a Brandon Webb, the former Cy Young winner for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Maybe he'll continue that Webb lineage. Not related, by the way. I looked it up. (laughs) But yeah, Tony, Walker Buehler, he threw an all right game. You can't pin this loss solely on Walker Buehler alone because the Dodgers just didn't come to hit. And if your team isn't going to come to hit as stacked of a lineup as you have, minus Max Muncy, but... That's still a stacked lineup that they have, and that just sucked. Also, why are you playing Cody Bellinger in center field over uh, Chris Taylor? Maybe it's a matchup thing, but what the hell, Dave Roberts? Like, Bellinger's been shitting the bed all year. Chris Taylor has not been. 
I don't know about that, dude, but maybe in the Game 2 lineup, things change. Because in Game 2, it was a complete opposite thing that happened. So, the San Francisco bats were kind of cooled off, but the Dodger bats, they ran rampant this entire game. Dodgers <laughs> accounted for 9, not 19, they accounted for 11 hits. They scored 9 runs, including 7 of which in the 6th inning on. They scored 4 in the 6th, 3 in the 8th. And that's what ultimately won this game was that monstro- monstrosity of an offense. That That's terrible wordplay. Jesus, backtrack. Um, that monster offense that finally came to play for the Dodgers. And, you, Tony, you mentioned Kevin Gossman as why he didn't start Game 1. Well, he actually started Game 2. He went 5 in the 3rd, struck out 7. That was good. Walked 3, shaky. 4 earned runs over that stretch, probably... All, um, most of which, well, he he gave up two in the second, then he probably gave up two in the uh, sixth, but not the best showing from Kevin Gossman. Um, a good showing though, from Julio Urias, who only went five innings, but in those five innings, he only gave up three hits, walked one, struck out five, threw a pretty solid game. And then Joe Kelly, Corey Kniebel, uh, Bradderson, I'm Gratterall. Bruzdar Gratterall. Yeah, Bruzdar Gratterall. Yeah, they shut down the uh, Giants. I thought the Dodgers just had the upper hand in this game once they started rallying. Absolutely, and this is this is one of those series you love to watch on TV, but if you're fellas like us who just spent like a half hour clowning on the White Sox, you almost have to lament and say, well, damn, we can't make jokes about this because truth, lie, and honesty, this is exactly the series that I anticipated happening. Game one, all Giants. Game two, all Dodgers. It's exactly the two strengths we exactly um, expected. The Giants pitching shows up in Game 1. Not even just Logan Webb. Their bullpen, uh, when they had to turn to it, did fantastic too. Tyler Rogers and Camilo Duvall. Game 2, different story, but you look at Game 2, that dynamite Dodgers offense. I, You look up and down, and Tom, like you said, even without Max Muncie, you have Will Smith, who has a 1,300 OPS in the postseason. So does Chris Taylor. Why Tafe Roberts decided to play Cody Bellinger over him escapes me to this day. We'll see how Game 3 goes. I'm very curious to see. Uh, it's going to be tomorrow from uh, from when we're recording today. It's going to be Max Scherzer against Alex Wood, uh, the former Dodger, actually, Alex Wood. And this really... Sh- I, I want to say that this normally should decide the momentum of the series, but considering how wo- how they could just... Both teams could just turn on the burners and absolutely leave the other one in the dust in seemingly a moment's notice as depicted here in games one and two it's really going to come down to the wire there's not much i think i could predict accurately at least a little bit accurately until we see it unfold even after game three yeah the one thing i wish i saw more out of this series was closer matchups between these two teams that we know these rivals can do very well is have that close game, high-intensity feel. We haven't really gotten that. There's been the up moments of the Giants. There's been the down moments of the Dodgers. There's been the up moments of the Dodgers and the down moments of the Giants. We haven't really gotten that. I'm hoping that we get those moments and we do go through a Game 5 in this series because I do think, Tony, you said that the momentum can swing at any moment. I think if the Dodgers wash out the Giants in the next game, I think it's going to be the Dodgers series to lose. I think, honestly... Like, they'll probably pull through at that rate unless they make some stupid Dave Roberts decisions. Then, maybe not. But if there's a wash in Game 3, I'm going to say that team is going to go on to win 
in game four. I don't think there would be a game five at that rate, especially if it's the Dodgers, because it's at Dodgers Stadium and they'll have the home field rallying for them. All right, that's fair. I think the resolve of both teams is going to be strong enough to bounce back after a game three loss. But again, we shall see. The game hasn't happened yet, and it's going to be hard to predict, especially when the teams are this good. Uh, Speaking of when the teams are this good, unless you had something else to add to uh, the Dodgers-Giants discussion, I said that both teams look too good to just roll over and die in the next two games. I anticipated to feel this way about the Dodgers versus the Giants. What I did not anticipate to feel this for was Brewers and Braves. Correct me if I'm wrong, the Braves proved a lot of people wrong in that game too, didn't they? Yes, they did. But before we get to game two, I want to talk about game one. Because you wrote down Corbin Burns and Charlie Morton. They pitched their damn arms off in this one-run duel. And then you also wrote down in parentheses, the legend of Rowdy Telez lives to see another day. Um, I ad-libbed that last part a little bit. But, anyway, you're absolutely right. Both pitchers pitched their damn arms off. The Cy Young, hopeful for the Brewers. Corbin Burns, six innings pitched. Only six strikeouts. That's low for him, but he didn't give up a run. He did walk three, um, which sucked, but that's fine. And then Adrian Hauser and then Josh Hader came in, and they um, didn't blank the Braves because Adrian Hauser gave up one run. But Charlie Morton, I think he even threw better maybe a little bit than Corbin Burns, despite giving up the two runs, because he struck out nine people, only walked one, again, in six innings, and then I believe it was Liam Jackson. There's L. Jackson on the team and Tyler Matzek. That is Luke Jackson Jackson and Tyler Matzek, you're right. Okay, well, at least I got half credit. Um, <laughs> they came in for Atlanta. Yeah, they both pitched their damn arm off. Ugh. <laughs> they both pitched their <laughs> damn arms off. And then Rowdy Telez, of course, the legend of him continues because what did he do against Charlie Morton in the seventh inning, Tony? Well, this is bound to make a lot of Blue Jays fans just the giddiest people on earth. They gave him the the Brewers. I don't, I don't even remember what they got back in return. I don't know if they got anything back in return. But, I'll, I'll look it up. But the legend himself, Rowdy Telez, greatest first baseman in the National League. Don't at me. Actually, please at me. That's obviously a joke. Uh, Rowdy Telez smacked a two-run home run off of Charlie Morton. Obviously, El Garcia was on first base. Uh, there weren't any outs in the inning yet. I believe this is in the seventh. Yes, it was. And Rowdy Telez goes to dead center off the batter's eye. And the fan favorite playing in Milwaukee sent the stadium into a frenzy and tom especially you do that off charlie morton charlie morton is one of the most prestigious postseason pitchers in mlb history like i argue he is to pitching in the postseason what someone like george springer or uh reggie jackson is to hitting he's not quite madison bumgarner levels i'm not going to say he's the best postseason pitcher ever but you look at his pedigree you look what he did with the rays uh when he was with them and what he's doing now with the Braves. If for anyone wondering why he was the game's uh the game one starter, that's why. Tom, I agree with you. I think he did pitch better than Burns in a vacuum, even though he did allow the, the two runs. Um and even then the Braves didn't just roll over and die. They did get one run back. Jock Peterson homered uh the very next half inning, but there wasn't much they could do against Josh Hader at that point, and they lose game one. Game two, however, very different story because as I put it on the rundown, the Braves managed to out-brewer the Brewers. And what I mean by that is have one pitcher pitch like Jesus Christ with a mitt and have the offense do the rest. Because 
I think both Tom and I's concern with the Braves, uh, sorry, the Brewers going into this series was their offense. And that weakness was taken advantage of so, 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 so much in game two by starter Max Freed. He went six full innings, struck out nine, gave up three, only gave up three hits and didn't walk anybody. Max Freed with a combination of Tom's favorite pitcher, Liam, also known as Luke Jackson. Uh, they threw Tyler Matzik back in, and Will Smith closed the door for the save. The Braves came to play in Game 2. They weren't just ready to roll over and die, even to another Cy Young-type candidate in Brandon Woodruff, who, credit to him, didn't pitch terribly. Actually kind of had a performance reminiscent of Charlie Morton in Game 1. He went 6, allowed, actually he allowed 3 runs, but he only walked 1 and struck out 7. So... Good for the Braves. Good for the Braves in Game 2. The momentum, I think, is squarely in their favor going into Game 3 because Brewers have Freddie Peralta going for Game 3, who finished the year off a little hairy, and the Braves have Ian Anderson, who actually finished the year off pretty well. So, Tom, I want your take on this. What do you think of how did everybody do? How did everybody do? How did both teams do down the stretch, and what's your take going forward? Uh, first of all, um, because I did say I would look this up, Riley Tellez, he was traded for Bowden Francis. I don't know who he is. Also, Trevor Richards, who pitched pretty well with the Toronto Blue Jays as a reliever. Or maybe it was a starter. I don't know. I didn't look at his baseball reference page for that much. But, Tony, you're absolutely right with this offense for the Brewers just not showing up. The highest average on the team is 500. That's by Luis Urias in uh, Game 2. He had a 2-for-4 performance. I don't know if he played game one at all but he's got that 500 average going for him the rest of the lineup there's only one guy that's batting above 250 and that's willie adamas the team's mvp i would argue this year everybody else has just got to pick up the momentum i mean the team struck out also 14 times against the braves you're, you're just not going to be able to win ball games if you're doing that granted max freed and the rest of the bullpen pitched extremely well for atlanta Matchup-wise, going into Game 3, you said it was Ian Anderson and Freddie Peralta, right? Correct. So, it's interesting you bring up Anderson is kind of going hot down the stretch, and Woodrow, or not Woodrow, Freddie Peralta kind of faltered a little bit down the stretch, because we've seen, I, I almost am bringing it back to our Yankees and Red Sox discussion, where one team was hot going into the postseason, one team wasn't, well, one team wasn't really hot going into the postseason, but they looked a shirt as hell a lot better than the other team going into the postseason. And guess what? The team that was below expectation, they outperformed the team above the expectation going into the postseason. So I think Freddie Peralta, we can't completely count him out yet because he's been one of the three big arms that Milwaukee has still had all year. They even rely on him so much that he was going to actually pitch out of the bullpen in game one. I believe Craig Council warmed him up at some point during that game. He ultimately didn't throw in that game. But I think he was warming up when Adrian Hauser was pitching after I think he gave up that one run. So they did trust him enough, and Craig Council surely has trust in him if he's going to use him out of the bullpen, that he can certainly rely on him on the mound. And Ian Anderson, I just want to pull up his baseball reference page just to see if he has a history in the postseason, as I spell his last name wrong. Uh, Ian Anderson, um, I believe, obviously you'll say for certain, but I believe he had a very good postseason last year. I believe when he played the Reds, you're shaking your head. Give us the numbers. So he actually threw in all three of the Braves postseason series last year. Remember, they went to the NLDS where they had that 3-1 lead and then they choked. Um, so he oh, threw yeah. in all those series. So against 
Cincinnati, he threw six innings of shutout ball, nine Ks, two walks, and that was a win against Cincinnati. He also threw one game, again, shutout ball against the Miami Marlins. Five and two-thirds innings, he gave up one walk, eight strikeouts. And then against the Dodgers, they ultimately, again, lost the series. He had a 2.57 ERA with them. He started two games. He, I'm, I don't have a game-by-game breakdown necessarily in front of me, but he pitched seven innings in total, only two earned runs. He gave up seven walks, so that's a little scary. And seven strikeouts. But he's got good postseason numbers minus that Dodgers series and probably one or two bad games he threw against the Dodgers. But 2.57 ERA, I'm not so concerned about that. But, um, yeah, he walked five people in one of those games, so he just had a bad game. But Ian Anderson, I, I actually got to give him a little bit more credit than I was going to give um, Freddie Peralta for because he has great history in the postseason, as we just found out. So I think in Atlanta, you got to give the Braves the advantage, especially if the Milwaukee Brewers can't hit. My sweetheart team cannot possibly make the World Series if they can't hit the fucking baseball to save their life. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, when you were going through their averages – I had no idea they were hitting that poorly, too. You mentioned their team MVP and Willie Adamas. He's hitting okay. Luis Urias, underrated, but not fantastic. He's doing good. Where did Amasio Garcia... Oh, Tele- I'm sorry? Yeah, Rowdy Telez also has a 250 batting average. I'm sorry, I forgot about him. That's true, too, but he's the goat of baseball. You expect that from him. Um, yeah. Where did Amasio Garcia go? Where did Eduardo Escobar go? I, I would say where did Christian Yelich go, but we've been asking that for two years. So, I cards on the table, Tom. I think all the momentum is in Atlanta's favor right now because they are an Atlanta team. If they do advance, they're getting squashed in the NLCS again because they are an Atlanta team. I don't know what kind of deal with the devil they made to have such uh, teams that perform poorly in the clutch. Cough, cough, Falcons. Cough, cough, last year's Braves. And it'll be a really disappointing season for the Brewers because... We always said if their hitting can get up to snuff, even if their hitting was average, they can go far. Maybe even the World Series. I mean, you had them in your World Series prediction, right? I did. I had them with Tampa um, in the World Series. I ultimately had Tampa winning. I don't remember if I said in the amount of games. If I did, I probably said six. But um, yeah, I knew the Brewers hitting would be an issue going into the postseason, though. But I still put them over teams such as the Braves and even the Giants, but they might not even make it to the next round. But it's just because I believed in them. Right now, I don't know if I can believe in the Brewers that well. Damn, well, hopefully believing in them will help them turn it around because we both like watching them. We both love that pitching staff. That pitching staff can be fantastic, but if you don't, like you said, Tom, if you don't hit the goddamn baseball, you're not going to go very far. And with that, what were you going to say? I was actually going to make an interesting point that I just thought of in this moment. Um, right ahead. And you're going to mention this. You're going to mention this honorable gentleman, I think, in a couple of minutes. But notice that we got the Braves and the Brewers playing in the postseason. And notice that each city is in Atlanta and Milwaukee. And the MLB was going to honor Hank Aaron this year, originally in Atlanta for the All-Star game. I just find it funny that both of these teams are kind of meeting in the postseason when this is the season that they were going to do a lot of honoring of Hank Aaron. So I think it's a almost like a nice little nod that these two cities are meeting up. It is. No, that's a very interesting point, and especially with uh, Aaron's tragic passing very early this uh, this year. It's great to see these two teams duking it out. Uh, obviously, a better performance from the Brewers would be nice, 
but uh, we'll see how it goes. Still early in the series, and like we've always said, momentum can change on a dime in this game. With that, unless you've got anything else to add, I think that's our discussion for the postseason uh, this week. We had a lot of series to get through. Next week we'll do... Next week... Bleh. Next week we're going to have fewer series to talk about. Maybe we'll do a fun little segment. Maybe we'll do... Uh, something about the World Series. Maybe we'll do something clowning on the teams that got eliminated, especially if one of those teams is the Chicago White Sox. It's looking very likely at the moment. But Yeah, we'll do a fun segment called Phone a Friend. We're just going to bring in Max Sacco and laugh at him for five minutes. <laughs> five, five minutes, and, and when, he hangs, when he hangs up after three seconds, we'll just keep calling him back. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, but either way... Uh, that'll close the door on this segment. And speaking of closing doors, Tom, what say we bring in the closer and talk briefly on our closer topics? We're just going to take a few short minutes to talk about one thing, anything about Major League Baseball. And Tom, why don't you start things off uh, this week? Because on the topic of laughing at teams, <laughs> we're going to laugh yeah, at a team I'm that's not, not even in the postseason. Now, I'm just going to mention the headline because it's a little bit older because I believe this happened earlier last week. So I'm not going to bring in all the details because once I already say what's going to happen, you can already imagine where this discussion is going to be. But the Mets declined the option for Luis Rojas. Therefore, he will no longer be the manager of the New York Mets, although they did offer him an unknown role in the organization to stay on. Maybe I'm thinking of Jace Tingler. I don't know, maybe the same thing happened to Luis Rojas. But Mets fans, rejoice, sing the high praises, hallelujah, hallelujah, Luis Rojas is gone. And some other manager, maybe Carlos Beltran, will come in and quote-unquote fix the team. Because he probably won't if he gets even brought on the disgraced uh, Beltran now, unfortunately, because of that whole cheating scandal. But I, <laughs> I, I said fix and... Uh, quote unquote, just because, um, can he really fix a team that has so many bad luck issues? Like I know Beltron like gets along great with players and all that, but I don't know, man. But even that being said, Beltron's not guaranteed to be the manager. He's not even guaranteed an interview, but the big news again, Luis Rojas won't be the manager of the Mets anymore. That is correct. And if it isn't Carlos Beltron, you got to wonder who they go with here. Do they like, they got Luis Rojas internally. They promoted him, I believe, from one of their minor league teams. Um, I know Ron Washington, uh, former manager of the Texas Rangers. I believe he is in the Brave system. I believe he is their third-base coach right now. I know he was linked with the Saint, uh, the Saint Diego, San Diego Padres uh, managerial vacancy. You got to wonder if you got to wonder if the Mets are looking in the same direction or maybe they'll look somewhere else. And Tom, my question here going forward, just briefly about this, there's been rumors about getting rid of Sandy Alderson too and looking for a guy like Theo Epstein. Is Luis Rojas the first domino to fall or just one execution that just needed to happen? See, we talked about this last week too because they originally, Billy Bean from the A's could come in and then revamp the um, Mets. Um I would like to point out that I don't believe Alderson would be completely gutted from the team. I think Alderson just took on one too many roles this year after many, many, many um, terrible um, incidents happened against the New York Mets and their GMs and uh, other notorious activities. So Alderson will still probably be with the team, 
next year and probably a couple years going forward um, because that's what Steve Cohen brought him in to do was stay in the franchise and um, kind of glue everything together and stuff like that. I think the I think they already I think Steve Cohen and Theo talked and I think Theo wasn't interested in the Mets job, so I don't think he'll be going to. I, I sincerely doubt he'll be on the New York Mets next year um, in their front office guiding something. But to answer your question, because I just remembered what it was, I do think it's a huge structural change that's going to be happening with the New York Mets. But first, got to figure out their higher-up situation, and then they can figure out what that person wants to do with the managerial position that's currently open for the New York Mets. Because you hire a manager right off the bat that might not get along with whoever's going to fill in that role that Sandy Alderson will ultimately not have next season, you're already starting things off on a bad foot. you got to get that person in there first before you can fix the manager issue. I agree. I mean, Trust me, this is not the first offseason where the Mets have a ton of questions that need answering. So hopefully, you know, this was Steve Cohen's first year in the show. It's definitely way too early to judge him and his actions. I still think he's on the right course. Uh, a lot is just going to depend on, you know, his new managerial choice for this year going forward and whether or not if they do get someone to replace one of Alderson's roles, like you said, if that person is going to mesh well and make the right decisions. And from there, we'll be able to judge whether or not we can laugh at them not re-signing Javi Baez and getting rid of their first round pick last year for him. So that being said, Luis Roas is gone. Congratulations, Mets fans. You finally have some good news. Um, And speaking of good news, even though this has nothing to do with the Mets, for my closer... The 2021 Hank Aaron Award finalists were announced recently. They were actually announced two days ago uh, from the time of recording this. And if you don't know, the Hank Aaron Award is given out to two players a year, one from each league, denoting the best offensive performer in both the American and the National League. For the American League, I'll just rattle them off. The American League, it was Aaron Judge of the Yankees, Cedric Mullins of the Orioles, Matt Olson of the A's, Vlad Guerrero Jr. for the Blue Jays, Jose Ramirez of the Cleveland Indians, glad to see him getting some recognition, uh, Salvador Perez of the Royals, and Shohei Otani from the Angels for the National League, Brandon Crawford of the Giants, good to see him getting recognition too, Bryce Harper of the Phillies, Fernando Tatis Jr. from the, Pro- uh, the Padres, Juan Soto, or Solo as I called him earlier from the Nationals, our boy Nick Castellanos hitting deep drives to left day in and day out for the Cincinnati Reds, Paul Goldschmidt from the Cardinals, and Freddie Freeman for the Braves. So like I said, Tom, this is an award given out to the off the best offensive player in each league. And I know I said I know we said earlier we kind of wanted to go back and forth for just briefly, or not back and forth, so to speak, but just give our takes of who's who's got the best chance of winning. And obviously in the past, uh, there has been a correlation of Hank Aaron Award winners and MVP winners. I believe last year they coincided perfectly. It was Abreu and Freeman. Uh, the year before, I actually can't remember off the top of my head. I know the MVPs were, um, I know it was Trout and, um, wait, who was the NL MVP of 2019? Why am I blanking? Bellinger, Bellinger, uh, we're dumb. It was Bellinger and... It was Trout. Yeah, we are dumb. I Trout. Think. I don't think Trout won in 2019. Yeah, he did. That was one of the best seasons of his career. Okay, yeah, it was. I'm f***ing stupid. Sorry. <laughs> Move on. I think they both won the Tank Aaron Award as well, but nevertheless, this could decide the MVP awards of this season too, but Tom, I'm going to go a little ballsy. 
I'm going to go with something that probably won't coincide with the MVP race. Because for the National League, even though I want to say Juan Soto, he's my favorite, at least my favorite hitter in baseball. I love watching the dude play. I feel like it's going to go to Bryce Harper. And to be fair, that's not necessarily a bad choice. He leads all of uh, MLB in OPS with a 1,044 OPS. That's pretty damn good. Soto's at third with a 999. But for the American League, like I said, I'm going a little ballsy. I'm going to say Vlad Jr. is going to win it. I know a lot of See, I, I know a lot of people. Wait, what were you gonna say? No, go on, go on, go on. I know a lot of people are thinking Shohei Otani, best player ever. He's gonna win MVP. I think that's I think that's indisputable at this point. But I wanted to point this out. Shohei Otani's first half of this year, he slashed two seventy nine, three sixty four, and six ninety eight. That's over a thousand OPS. That's fantastic. Second half, he fell off a little bit. His batting average dropped all the way to two twenty nine. His OPS, uh, excuse me, OBP actually went up to a 382, so he was walking more often. And his slugging tanked to a 458. He only hit 13 home runs versus 33 in the first half, bringing his OPS down to an 839. Vlad Jr. has been consistent from day one. You remember how I said Bryce Harper was number one in OPS and Juan Soto was number three? Yeah, it's Vlad bringing in at number two. He's the only American League player with an over with an OPS over 1,000. And like I said, Tom, Guerrero's just been more consistent. He really has. Shohei stumbled a bit at the end, although his two-way prowess will obviously lead him to an MVP. When speaking strictly offensively, I don't think you could deny Vlad here. I really don't, especially since he's not getting MVP to begin with. I know that's not why you give people awards. You do it strictly based on merit, but I think Vlad has that merit and more. Yeah, I'm going to keep my thoughts brief because we got to wrap this episode up pretty quickly, but I am in complete agreement with you with Vlad in the American League because if you're looking at the best offensive player in the American League, that's Vlad Guerrero Jr., no doubt about it. Shohei had a great year. He launched a lot of home runs and got on base a lot, but he was not the best offensive player this year in the American League. Vladdy led at least the American League in runs, home runs, OBP, slugging, OPS, OPS+, plus in total bases every single category Vlad Jr. leads a um he led the league in so obviously he's the best offensive player in the American League again I think the right choice is to say Bryce Harper for the National League but just to be different and because he was the first person that came to mind when I was talking about offensive prowess in the National League I'm gonna give it to Juan Soto please say Nick Castellanos okay <laughs> no, he only leads in walks and OBP and intentional walks. Um, he also leads in grounded into double plays too, but I don't care about that. His home runs and RBIs won't blow you away. He only had 29 home runs. He only had 95 RBIs. He only had 157 hits, 20 doubles, two triples. I could go on and on and on. But if you're looking at one of the more reliable hitters throughout for consistency's sake, I'd... I'd I mean, I could say the same thing about Bryce Harper, though, because the second half of the season was great for him, but I just want to give it to Juan Soto, just because I know Bryce will win the MVP, and you did say the MVP and the Hank Aaron Award winner usually do correlate, and that probably will this year, minus Shohei in the American League. I'm going to go reverse, I'm going to give it to Juan Soto in the National League, just for being different. All right, totally fair, and honestly, I think I'd like that more. I love Soto's game, I love how much he gets on base, and if he gets it, I don't think that's the wrong answer. Nick Castellanos might not be the wrong answer for internet meme culture, but 
he probably won't get it. And we don't have a deep drive to left to commemorate him for this week because that is all we have for you for this week's edition of the Diamond Duo Podcast. Yeah, yeah, hold your horses there, buckaroo. I am doing the outro this week. You did the intro. I'm not doing the outro. I was about to pass it off to you. Trust me, I... I got I got the intro right this week. I only needed one take to do it, unlike in episode four. I'm not pressing my luck doing the outro, too, because I'd find a way to screw it up. So, Tom, take it away. Well, let's see if I find a way. <laughs> let's see if I can find a way to screw up the outro and see if I do it in one take or not. You guys probably won't know the difference, but you know what? Me and Tony will, and that's what matters the most. any rate, thank you for listening to the guy ready. Great start. This is staying in. I couldn't remember I couldn't remember what number episode this was. Anyway, here we go. Let's do this take two. Thank you everybody for listening to the sixth episode of the Diamond Duo, our second October edition of the Diamond Duo podcast. We've got plenty more playoff baseball to discuss. All next week we'll be breaking down what was the remnants of the AL and AL and NLDS, the ALCS and the NLCS. And if we know a World Series, um, if we know anybody going to the World Series at that rate, we will also let you know about that then, too. And we'll have plenty more fun stuff to do next week. This week was all playoffs. Next week, we'll probably add some more fun elements. But at any rate, thank you guys for listening, and stay tuned for more from the Diamond Duo. Have a great week, everyone.